Hello and welcome to the Clubhouse, Golf Monthly's weekly look at the various different events around the world in golf. Today we look back on a busy week at the RBC Heritage, discuss the Ryder Cup's reported postponement and hear exclusively from former world number one, Justin Rose. Hi guys, Justin Rose here and welcome to the Golf Monthly Clubhouse podcast. Hello and welcome to the Clubhouse, brought to you by our friends at Titleist, the number one ball in golf. For more, visit titleist.co.uk. Hello and welcome. My name's Tom Clark and as ever, I'm joined by Elliot Heath. Hi, Elliot. Hello, Tom. And also Sam Tremlett this week. How are you doing, Sam? I'm all good. How are you guys? Yep, all good, yeah, all good. Now, good, firstly, we need to talk about we had a battle royale on a golf course last Friday where... The Golf Monthly team got together for the first time, obviously socially distancing, and played uh, around the golf. There was 12 of us. How did it all go for all of us? Yeah, it was great seeing everyone, wasn't it? Uh, I really enjoyed, you know, seeing the friendly faces again. Obviously, we've had a lot of Zoom calls and stuff, but you can't beat face-to-face contact. And it was around a brilliant golf course. I love the Bernard Hunt course at Fox Hills. I love the Long Cross course at Fox Hills too. And uh, yeah, we used um, VPAR, the app for mobile scoring as well, which was really fun seeing the leaderboard updated like hole by hole. We could see who came last, Clazar, and uh, <laughs> who came top as well, which was, yeah, really fun. Added a bit before of pressure. You there, well. before you, yeah, before you did. As, as, yeah, I did come last and I didn't play very well. Fox Hills was an absolute delight. Never been there before. It was gorgeous. So looking forward to going back there again. I did right. not play very well. Elliot, you played okay and then choked a bit at the end. Sam, did you finish third, Sam? Yeah, finished third. I I had a bit of a bottle moment as well. I should I should have probably won. I had two or three doubles where I shouldn't have. <laughs> the old dust wedge uh, emerged a few times, but yeah, I mean I hadn't played at the course either, and I, yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Good to see everybody, as as Elliot said, not through a, a screen this time, but yeah, it was it was really good. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, I was uh, level par after nine holes somehow, and then the beer started flowing, and I, I ended up shooting eight over on the back. So, <laughs> uh, perhaps looking at that app, the uh, pressure got to me, and I started to imagine my winner's speech. Probably, yeah, which I wasn't off. Yeah, so I was looking at Elliot. Elliot was very much at the top of the leaderboard, and then suddenly he just dropped away. But then I found out he had to have half a bottle of beer or something like that, so no shock. He's a bit lightweight. And also, he doesn't, uh, he's not very good under pressure. But other than that, great. Uh, any, any other golf for you? Was there any golf at the weekend for you? Uh, no, I'm playing Friday at a place called Pine Ridge, which I'm looking forward to for the first time. That's in Camberley, my local town. And that is meant to be one of the best pay and play courses in the UK. And hopefully, he doesn't listen to this podcast, but I'm playing with somebody whose best ever score is 108. So. That'd be quite interesting. You could you could have made a joke there and said, "Was it me?" But um, you came on in a match, Elliot, and managed to lose that as well. Or uh, no, hopefully we just get round in under seven hours. <laughs> oh, you know that's not too bad. So what's he um, playing? Anyway? He does have a handicap. He's only been playing for about a year. Oh, well, there you go. Uh, but we're gonna let's move on the conversation from us talking about our rubbish golf, and let's talk about the PGA Tour. So at the weekend there was the RBC Heritage. Uh, Webb Simpson won his seventh PGA Tour title and second of 2020 to move up to a career high fifth in the world. 
Simpson birdied five of the last seven holes to win by one. He set the 72-hole scoring record at Harbortown at 22 under par. He made 46 out of 47 putts inside seven feet, which is very solid. Uh, he now has a third, three runner-ups and two wins in his last 13 starts. So no wonder he's fifth in the world now. Uh, he, of course, won the 2012 US Open, 2018 Players' Championship, and has also played in three Ryder Cups. So is he the most underrated player in the world at the moment? I think he could be. When he gets hot, he is absolutely incredible. I watched him win the Phoenix Open, finish in, I think, birdie, birdie, and then he birdied the playoff hole to beat Tony Fino. And that was just so clutch. And then this weekend as well, I thought the front nine, it looked like Hatton and Answer were going to win because Simpson just couldn't hold a thing. And then just absolutely caught fire on the back nine. I think, yeah, he's well justified of his top five ranking. I really enjoy watching him play. One of the strengths of his game at the moment, you would say, is his putting. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Now, okay. he, he's had issues with his putter. Indeed, over, yeah. So, yeah, he used to use the old uh, belly putter, didn't he? And he, he went through a couple of years of trying to work out how to not like, putt with an anchor, which is, yeah, I mean, as Elliot was saying, like he seems to, whenever he seems to get hot with the putter now, just everything seems to drop in from everywhere. So, I mean, it's really good to see that somebody's managed to work their way back from something that could, like, ruin a career, if you think about it, like he yeah. was. Sorry, Sorry, yeah, it does look a bit odd, doesn't it? Claw grip with it going up the arm, but, yeah, somehow it works. We, we've seen a lot of players who used to anchor the putter haven't really had success since. When you look at Adam Scott, he's had a little bit of success, but he... He's found his own way, but Keegan Bradley, obviously a major winner, uh, won a few big tournaments, hasn't really found that form again. Uh, but Simpson is arguably putting better than he was before when he was anchoring. Yeah, I, I think he. De- I think he's playing better than it than he ever has. It's obviously it's his highest world ranking, and you've already mentioned that he's already already played in three Ryder Cups. I mean, if the Ryder Cup was going to take place this year, which we'll come on to later, he would be nailed on for being in that team again because he's got an incredible record this year. Obviously, winning twice is brilliant. But I think he's very, very underrated. And he's probably underrated because he's just not a very spectacular golfer, is he? Uh, he's usually just pretty solid, tee to green, doesn't hit it the longest, but doesn't hit it the shortest. You know, he's just very, very consistent, tee to green, and then try and hold the putts. And if he gets hot, he does hold those putts. I mean, as far as the underrated discussion goes, he's got to be up there because, I mean, he's won a major, he's won the players, he's, as you said, he played in th- he's played in three Ryder Cups and he's had seven PGA Tour wins. I mean, can you think of anybody else that's got that kind of resume that, like, we don't talk about all the time kind of thing, like, and and we always forget about, if you see what I mean. So, like, I think he's had the same amount of PGA Tour wins as Brooks Kepka, for example. I don't think it's really a discussion. I think he's, he's probably kind of he's probably kind of in the same bracket as someone like Zach Johnson. I mean, Zach Johnson's obviously won the Open and the Masters. He's won the Open at St Andrews as well. So, you know, I don't know, but he, you know, he's obviously everybody knows that he's a very good golfer and he's done very well. He's obviously played lots of Ryder Cups as well. But no one ever really mentions him when they're talking mm. about golfers in the world. But actually, he's been a very very successful golfer, and he's another one who's very, very consistent, tee to green, and then actually is a very good putter. So I wonder if that's mainly just because of the, their style of game. I don't know. But um, there's not many people who are, are as underrated, I think, as those guys. And what do we think of the event at the weekend? Obviously, it's the second event since the PJ Tours returned. 
There were some good headlines, you know, Abraham Anser, Tyrrell Hatton, Daniel Berger again. They all finished uh, a couple of shots back from Simpson. Do we enjoy it? Do we enjoy the event? Yeah, I thought it was brilliant. There was a three-hour delay, I think. So I actually stayed up and watched it all the way till half past one in the morning. And it was just another great golf tournament. I don't want to sound like I've really been a PR guy for the PJ Tour or anything like that. I, you know, I do criticise it when it is a bit boring. But I thought, yeah, it was great. The, there were loads of players up the top of the leaderboards. It was really good watching Tyrrell Hatton. I thought he was going to do it on the front line. And just like we said last week as well, I don't think a lack of crowd really took anything away from the event again. Yeah. I, I, I think the big thing for, for this week was that actually I, lo- I really, really love that golf course. It's an yeah. interesting golf course. It's, you know, it's not just a, it doesn't really suit the bombers, does it? Uh, it suits the guys who plot it around and control it. Rory's come out and said he, he's not sure whether, he remembers now why he hasn't played it in the event for 10 years because it doesn't really suit his game. But I just think he's got some really interesting holes and I think it's been spectacular. I think the golf was excellent, really. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure why the golf was so excellent. I mean, that sounds like a weird question, but I've got a couple of stats here. So 12 under won the last two RBC Heritage events. And in this year, 12 under would get you tied third, uh, 33rd, sorry. Uh, and from 1969 to 2019, only two players shot 19 under or better during the event. And in 2020, six players did that. So it's like, I'm not entirely sure why everybody went birdie crazy this week, <laughs> to be honest. But uh, yeah, I mean, I used to play... Harbour Town, the old Tiger Woods games, and yeah, I mean it's just a lot of fun, like to look at, like the peak die, like um, what they call the bleachers, not not the bleachers, the sleepers, and all that kind of stuff. And I think it looks great, plays great. Clearly, it's always a good event, to be honest. I'm just not used to it being everybody ripping it up, to be honest. <laughs> I think I think just the setup that they had it. I think they just had it. The pins in decent positions. I know there was a little bit of rain around. I mean, they had to blow for a storm what on friday night is that right for round two just before the cut so i think they had a bit of rain around in the evenings which maybe softened up the course a bit i mean but it didn't seem to be playing that soft did it it just seemed to be that everyone just seemed to be holding everything on the on the on the greens didn't they yeah i thought the standard of golf was incredible on sunday like i said earlier about hatton he i think he was four under par for his first six holes going out with a lead in a pj tour event and then Berger played great as well. Abraham answer was phenomenal two to green for the whole week. I think he hit, what was it, 65 out of 72 greens, which is the most at the RBC Heritage in 40 years. Uh, he hit all 18 greens in the final round. And yeah, he's definitely going to be a star in the future. I feel a bit sorry for Hatton because, you know, he's he had the lead in the PJ Tour event going the final round and he shot five under and he didn't win. You know, he finished a couple back in there, didn't he? So, they, I know it was the course was playing, was scoring well anyway. So um, you know he had to at least do that. But um, I felt he, he, hopefully that settled him down, and it's going to be a good uh, learning curve for him for the future. Um, but we're going to move away now from the playing side of it and actually talk about a different side of the events because there was some big headlines that came out from the weekend. Firstly, Nick Watney became the first player to test positive for COVID nineteen on the PGA Tour. He had flown to the event on the Monday morning, sharing Sergio Garcia's private jet. Um, He was tested on the Monday 
and even though he wasn't feeling particularly great, as he said, he he didn't he didn't test positive. Uh, but then after I think round two or before round two, on the the Friday, he wasn't feeling very well again. He asked for another test, got tested, and it came back positive. Um, so obviously, this is the first time that a player has failed a COVID nineteen test on the PJ tour, the main PJ tour, we should say, because there has been a few positive tests on the Corn Ferry tour. But I think it is a bit of a wake up call for a lot of the players. We've seen throughout that people, you know social distancing hasn't really been happening on the PJ tour. Uh, you know, caddies have been touching the golf clubs as much as the players. There's been a lot of fist bumping and a lot of you know a lot of people clowning about and um, maybe not keeping the two metre distance. Um, do you think this is a big uh, wake-up call for the PJ Tour? Yeah, I think you summed that up perfectly there. I noticed over the weekend the players were sort of air fist bumping each other, which was nice to see. Obviously, they've they've really taken that on board and the PJ Tour must have warned them, like, look, guys, if two, three, four, five more people test positive, we might have to suspend play again for another three months. I would say that I'm I'm surprised now that this isn't the main story from the week. Having read it on Friday, I thought, you know, oh no, this is an absolute disaster. Obviously, it's terrible for Nick Watney and his family, and hopefully, he makes a full recovery. But yeah, I just thought, oh no, imagine if five or six players get it, and Monday morning we're talking about the PGA Tour being cancelled again. Yeah, and and that could, you know, that could still happen that's the thing you know there's lots of stories about Watney wandering around even after he'd had his second test you know he was down on the range and on the putting green and stuff like that which is which is bonkers when you think about it you know someone's come in feeling not very well asked for another test and instead of then isolating that player that player is allowed to walk around inside what's supposed to be the bubble that is just ridiculous and and hopefully this is the learning curve that the PJ Tour need to realise that they can't let that happen again. That's just ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah, sure, definitely. What was interesting that I found about, uh, that I read about, was that he said he didn't feel too well and his whoop watch picked up on something that his not wasn't feeling well and that's when he asked for the second test. So maybe it could be worth more <laughs> players getting that. I'm not... Um, yeah, yeah it, it was his Fitbit. Yeah, yeah. I, I find it hard to believe that the PGA Tour aren't going to take this super seriously now, as much as they have been doing early anyway. But I mean, from what Justin Thomas has been saying in terms of the Hilton Head area, doesn't seem that it's been taken seriously that much down there, to be honest. And hopefully that is change, changing for Connecticut next week. Yeah, yeah. so I've, I've just had an email, and I'm sure you guys have as well, from the European Tour about media credentials for the restart next month and even the media have to stay in a designated hotel to to remain in that bubble and it does sound a little bit like once you're tested on the PGA Tour you're allowed in once you leave you can do whatever you want and like yeah Justin Thomas said Hilton Island was like a zoo with packed restaurants packed beaches and I think this will be a wake-up call for the European Tour as well even though I think they're taking it a lot more seriously and it probably justifies why the European Tour is being so, you know, anal about this. 
it's yeah, they're being they're being particularly cautious, aren't they? And you, you're right that you know, I think on the European tour, the press, if you're going to go into the bubble, you've got to stay inside the hotel, you've got to stay on site, you've got to be tested. So the press will be tested. Whereas the, on the PGA tour, the press aren't being tested. For example, there's lots of people in the so-called bubble who haven't been tested, which is which is a bit weird for me. But also, it is a different country, and they are obviously doing things slightly differently in America, um, and, which we all know. And you know, we can all comment on what's going on over there. But you know, there's lots of things happening over here as well, aren't there? So um, it, it is a huge wake-up call for the PGA Tour. As you've already said, let's hope that Nick Watney recovers fully from this, and and uh, we're thinking of him at, the, at this time, um, and that the week ahead and the weeks ahead, I'm sure there's going to be other isolated incidents of golfers catching it. I think that's just going to be something that's going to happen, but let's hope that they are absolutely isolated incidents and um, it, they don't have a have a, a spread or a spike because I think that could end the PGA Tour for, for the year, really, if that happens. Um, yeah. So it was another solid week for Justin Rose at the RBC Heritage. Who, uh, he finished tied 14th after his tied third at the Charles Schwab Challenge the week before. And um, we've got a bit of audio from him now, taken from a longer magazine feature last year. Uh, Rose talks us through the secrets to his technique, from his former coach, Sean Foley, to how his dad helped him develop and much more. So enjoy this bit of audio from Justin Rose. So I think when I look at my golf swing, you know, obviously we have traits. We have stuff that's just very hard to iron out of your swing. Um, if I look at it, for me, two things that have remained fairly constant is, well, one, my release profile. I've always been someone who works pretty hard to to release the club. Well, I, I don't try to release the club. I'm always trying to keep the club as passive as possible, but I release it pretty hard in the swing. And that comes from years of growing up with a very open club face. I used to be very toe down at the top of my swing. And the other thing is because of that, trying to square that club face at the bottom, my head tends to stay back as well. So those are probably traits that I've had a really hard time getting rid of, but in some ways they're my talent. You know, uh, that my right hand I call my steering wheel, you know, and I think I'm, I'm very good at timing it up at the bottom and you know, that is how I play golf. I'm not a guy who's bowed and super strong and that holds the face very passive. I can sort of do it on the driving range when I'm in the flow, but it's something that I've never really been able to bet into my game to take that to the golf course. Uh, at, some at some points that causes me trouble, but I think in other times I, you know, I play with a lot of feel. Even though I look quite a, a methodical and technical player, I, I, there's quite a lot of feel still in my swing. Club phase rotating through the ball is also a way to get speed. You know, one, you can have it closed at the top, but then you're not really releasing it over the top like a forehand in tennis. So I guess I learned almost to get a lot of speed by throwing the club at impact. So I would say that is probably why I developed playing with an open face is because I had to sh really create the speed through impact. And you know, you get a lot of speed, one with club head speed, but also face rotation has an element to, yeah. to how you're going to hit it. But um, yeah, that, I'd love to iron. I'm still working on that part of my game, um, you know, when I started working with Sean Foley, we definitely had a three-phase approach, um, you know, backswing, transition, and then through into the follow-through. And I would say I still haven't mastered the follow-through in terms of being completely in balance how I want it with club face stable and what, and what have you. But I know that basically that half of the swing is always a bit of a culmination of, of what's happened 
prior to and coming into impact. So, um, you know, we're always continuing to refine my game. We've had to work around injuries as well. Um, you know, Sean inherited some problems with my swing and my game and my body based upon previous technique and, and things like that. So, you know, we've always had to have a few workarounds, um, especially I would say from 2016 into 17 into 18, we started to look at the golf swing not so much from how we would want it technically perfect, but what was safe for me. And in some ways we went a little bit retro. Uh, we call it sort of 1960s style. We you know, have a lot more slack in my lower half, a lot more straightening of my right leg. The left, the left leg would move a lot more, you know, more kind of a la Sam Snead and, and, and you know, guys of the past, rather than the very much X-factor approach where you keep the lower half still and you turn the upper body on top. I think we, we've gone away from that methodology. Um, there's a lot of methodology now that's come out, you know, out onto tour. You know, you kind of your Matt Wolfs and these guys that have these super funky backswings, but it's all about how they lay it down in transition and then can turn through very hard. So I'm trying to incorporate parts of that that approach into my game. Um, you know, I tend just to at the still even now get the club almost too in front of me. I think there was. Um, for so long, people talked about getting the club in front of you, getting the club in front of you, but I want to feel like the club is behind me, so I then have the uh, incentive to turn my body through, and it's like a water skier. You know, when the boat's turning, eventually that water skier gets flung out, and that's the same with a golf club. You kind of want it behind you, your body's the, the boat turning to the left, and eventually that club is going to get kicked out. And that, you know, that's the, I would say, the new move in golf that, that, that people are trying to perfect. Um, at the moment, I can kind of just still get a little ahead of it, get the club dumped out a little bit. Then I'm trying to like find that space, you know, at the end um, to fit that, to fit the club into impact, I suppose. Right. Fundamentals, I think, good grip, um, alignment, set. You know, we, he, he obviously was. He, he taught me. He read it. He read golf magazines, and, and he passed what he knew on. Uh, you know, he loved the face being toe down. That's what he thought was right. So, you know, obviously I've inherited some other things from him too. But um, I would say just the way we kept it very simple. Uh, I, I would say more of the mental approach that he, he, you know, he was fantastic at how we prepared for events. I think I was way ahead of the curve in terms of how we would go about, you know, setting our, our targets, goals, um, and working into a tournament. You know, whether it be the McGregor Trophy, England Under-16s, or the Karras Trophy, England Under-18s, we would have a sort of a two or three month plan in place of how I would prepare. You know, even re remember getting ready for the Walker Cup. I'd never played in America. I'd never played in that amount of humidity. So I remember going up to my bathroom, turning on the shower, turning on the bathtub, trying to steam the whole thing up, wearing six levels, six layers of clothing, excuse me, and practicing my putting in there for an hour. So, you know, that was kind of my way of preparing. And so my dad always encouraged me to, to think about the, the mental side and the preparation side. And one thing I wish I've done a better job of, but you know, we almost had like a recall system where if I hit a great nine iron, we called it the Ratcliffe on Trent nine iron, which is where the England the 16 championships was played. And I hit a great shot into the last hole to six feet. And, you know, forevermore, every time I had a nine iron, you try to conjure up those positive memories. So he was very, very good at on the mental side. Trackman's been huge in terms of the understanding of the D plane, um, the understanding of you know what the combination of swing direction and attack angle. You know that those are the two things that create the club path, the path of the sweet spot. So you know you used to look at your divot and you think, oh my divot's straight. Why you know why is the ball hooking? Well, you know, if you swing straight at the target, but with a very steep angle of attack, essentially the, the sweet spot's traveling out to the right. Um, so there's that combination that, that, that science has learned to figure out. Um, 
you know, even when you look at some of the greats in terms of how they've gone about drawing and fading it, that's proven not to be the way that it actually works. So it's very interesting. Um, I always used, never understood why I would always hook the ball and I try to hit it low. And it's for the exact same reason, really. You know, you put the ball back in your stance and all of a sudden, you know, you're hitting down more, the sweet spot's traveling more to the right. You're putting more curve, you know, right to left spin on the ball. So, and I still do it to this day. Like, I, if I, I just sometimes want to get a benchmark for where my feels are. So I can be feeling like I'm swinging one way. And I, I like to, especially with the driver, I like to put it on track, man, because, I, you know, I hit two or three up on it and I want to know how far out to the right I can swing to create what's a fairly neutral path. Um, so I can learn, I can say, okay, well, I'm still a couple of degrees negative. I can keep swinging out to the right until we kind of find that, that zero number, just as a, as a benchmark, as a feel. So, I mean, I, I wouldn't say I'm actually that technical. People yes. often think that I am, but I would use the technology to create a feel. What can I then go and play with on the golf course? You know, but it's just giving me parameters. I don't think you can ever play perfect golf. I think great golf is how good your bad shots are. And if, if, if those parameters come in, I think, you know, a, fr a friend of mine's a beginner golfer and he said, oh yeah, I've got quite a big V in my game. You know, that's the way he described it. Like, ball goes this way and this way. And I, get, I said to him, I've got a V in my game too. It's probably just, a, you know, a lot tighter than yours. So I guess that's just, we're always trying to bring these parameters in in terms of what's good and what's bad. But you're right, you, a two-way miss is probably something that's very hard to play with. Um, you can't aim that way. If you have a tendency one way or another, you can always make a smart decision on the golf course knowing what your tendencies are. Um, so I guess trying to get rid of a two-way miss is the, will be the first thing you've got to try and do in your game. It's important at the age that I am at now that I work smartly, efficiently and make the most of it. I would say if I was to split it up an hour in the gym, an hour putting, an hour chipping, an hour hitting balls and then about four hours mess, I don't know where the rest of the day goes. <laughs> um, but it's, I think as a young man, as a young pro and as a young kid, yeah, you've got to spend as much time as you can learning and honing your game and being creative though. You can't, I, I, I would always discourage people to stand on the range for four or five hours. I think that takes such a toll on your body over time. Um, I would encourage them to, to do two or three drills that challenge them, that make the skill of hitting balls harder. I go hit off a sandy lie for an hour. So, you know, your body's gonna figure out what to do to make good, clean contact. Don't just give, have a perfect lie and hit for hours. You know, that's not really simulating what's gonna happen on the golf course. So we call that deep practice, where you take a skill, make it harder and try and do it efficiently. Um, and then spend time on the golf course. And as a kid, I think probably the thing that developed my game the most was throwing my ball in the woods and deep, like 100 yards in the woods and figuring out a path through and how, you know, how many shots would it take me to get it in the hole you know, up over limbs, round trees, you know, stuff like that. That's where the creativity is born. I think uh, chalk lines and alignment sticks, they have their place, but I don't think that's really gonna drive on. Um, you know, that can maybe get you very, very efficient at the game. I don't think it's gonna make it great at the game. So there you go, that was Justin Rose. Anything that stood out for you there, Elliot? Yeah, lots of good stuff there from Rosie. Kind of uh, like we've never really heard him before, actually. Fascinating to hear so in detail to his technique. Uh, there's a, a really funny story in there about what he was doing at the Walker Cup in his bathroom, putting the, the bathtub on full heat, wearing a couple of coats and practicing his putting. That just shows you the measures that he and his dad went to to, to get him to perform that well. Uh, I also found it fascinating talking about junior golf, how he used to chuck golf balls in the woods and try and get it in the hole as 
you know, as low as possible. And yeah, I, I just hope that listeners found that interesting. It's fascinating to hear Rose on his technique like that. Yeah, and he's obviously got a lot going on at the moment. He's obviously got the ladies series, which he's sponsoring, happening. He's playing a lot more golf and fingers crossed, he looks like he's playing pretty well. So he's uh, again playing this week as well. But before we talk about what's happening this week, uh, there is another great story from the weekend was uh, Chris Kirk winning his first title back since his seven month break last year to recover from alcoholism and depression. He won the King and Bear Classic on the Corn Ferry Tour, which is the tour just below the PJ Tour. Uh, Kirk is a four-time PJ Tour winner and was as high as 16th in the world in 2015. So this this is a really good news story, isn't it? Yeah, it's great to see him back. Obviously a, a class player. I remember following that story last year. I wrote about it on the Golf Country website and I wrote again uh, in November when he came back. And yeah, really nice to see him doing well. He did a little video of the PGA Tour and that was a, a really nice quote in there where he was like, a lot of people get divorced, lose their house, lose everything rock bottom. And he, he's like, I thank God every day that I didn't go that far. And hopefully a lot of people out there will, you know, take inspiration from him. Yeah, I think he's pushed back inside the world's, he's around the world's 200, top 250 now. And he was, he was outside the world's top 500. So that's brilliant to see. Uh, and of course, we have to mention as well that Charlie Hull won the first Just Rose Ladies Series event at Brockenhurst Manor. Fantastic to see the ladies getting a place in pro golf, and also fantastic to see an English woman who's such a great golfer in the form of Charlie Hull doing doing so well there. Yeah, it was great to see American Golf come on board for that as well, and Computer Tech I think added some money for the Order of Merit. Um, also really exciting that they're going to play the West course at Wentworth for the final. I think that's going to be the first time ladies pro golf will be contested over that course. Uh, I've only got one bugbear with this series and that is that it's not live on Sky Sports, which I thought it was going to be after the announcement. So I think they're missing out on quite a bit of exposure there, but you know, there's an awful lot of coverage on social media for people to look at. Yeah. Hull's victory. I wish it was on TV because it was quite exciting because, uh, she double bogey, I believe, the 17th. She was two shots clear and dropped back into a playoff. I mean, she parred the last and then birdied the first extra hole. So, I mean, it would have been good to obviously see that on TV to see it finish in an exciting way. But, um, yeah, not not a lot we can do about that, to be honest, from our position. And all we can do, obviously, as, as, a, as a golf media brand is that we can make sure that we cover the event as much as we can, and we, we have been doing that. So if you'd like to keep up to date with everything that's going on across the world of golf, including the Justin Rose Ladies Series, do check out the Golf Monthly website, golf-monthly.co.uk, and also our social media at Golf Monthly on Twitter and Instagram and Golf Monthly Magazine on Facebook. This week, there is another PGA Tour event in the form of the Travellers' Championship. Uh, it, it's being played at TPC River Highlands in Connecticut. It's only 6,800 yards long, only. That's long enough for me. Uh, <laughs> Ches Reevy won last year. Uh, Bubba Watson is a three-time winner there. And all five of the Welsh top five are in the field for the third straight week and nine of the top ten in total. Who do we think is going to do well this week? Sam, you can start. I've been thinking about how wrong I've been. So I remember when I was on a couple of weeks ago saying that the guys, the quality of golf might not be that good after the break. Well, they've been absolutely tearing up. So I've clearly shown that I know absolutely nothing. Um, <laughs> I'm going to go with 
you put me on the spot. Sung J M because he's just an absolute beast. Yeah, he, he, I was looking. He's thirty-five to one. Has been playing well. I've tipped him the last couple of weeks as well, and uh, he has been playing pretty well. Although he did miss a cut, I think last week. But uh, you, I think he's he's not a bad shout at all. Uh, Elliot, what about you? Uh, I'm going to go for possibly the tournament favourite, Bryson DeChambeau. Uh, it's a very short course, but I don't think that will stop him. He's I think he's outside of the world's top 10 at the moment, but he's playing like a top five player. So, you know. Very imaginative, going for the tournament favourite, right? He's not actually, he's not actually favourite. He's the okay. tournament second favourite. Uh, Rory, <laughs> no, they, Rory's to one. Justin Thomas and DeChambeau about 12 to one. Um, but I quite like, a, well, I'm going to mention two people. I actually like Rose again. Rose can get them at 25 to one. You'll probably get them at 30 to one if you looked hard enough. But also Abraham Ansa as well, who had such a good week last week on not a you know not a particularly long course, and I think Ansa could actually this course could actually fit his eye again. So uh, obviously someone that's playing really well as well. So I think they're a couple. But as ever, for the whole of our betting tips, do search golf betting tips in Google or go to Golf Company website and check out our full list of betting tips because there is a few. So the final thing that we're going to talk about today is quite a big thing, and that is the Ryder Cup. Now, the last couple of weeks, we've been quite hopeful about the Ryder Cup because there's been lots of chatter. Uh, the USA team announced that they were going to have six wild card picks. Obviously, PGA Tour Golf had returned. There was also the news that they were going to have some fans at PGA Tour events in July. So we thought, you know what, this is looking pretty good for the Ryder Cup at the end of September. But then, fast forward to last night, there was breaking news from uh, the Guardian newspaper on their website where Ewan Murray had written that next week there is likely to be an announcement that the Ryder Cup will be postponed to 2021. Guys, what's your thoughts on this? Yeah, he's not making that up, is he? He obviously has very high up sources, so I would imagine that this is correct. And uh, I'm really sad. I think a lot of people, a lot of fans will perhaps be a little bit relieved because they want the Ryder Cup to be the best Ryder Cup. But yeah, I was getting used to it happening. Even without fans now, I think I'd watch it. I think it would be, uh, like Justin Rose said about a month ago, I think it'd be really intense. And even if it did have some fans, I think it would still be really intense and great competition. So yeah, I'm a little bit disappointed personally. I'm I'm absolutely gutted to be honest, but I mean it's purely from a standpoint of health and safety. So it's hard to be that down about that because if they can't hold it safely, then there's no real point in hosting it. If you see what I mean? Like there's I think that's the most important thing and depending on their announcement next week or whenever it's supposed to be, I think that's the correct decision it appears so it's hard to be that annoyed about that to be honest yeah there's there's a couple of things that he mentioned he said which is actually something that you've said a couple of times sam when you spoke to uh i think it was mcginley or harrington about that they haven't actually done a lot of the building of the infrastructure that they need at the course whereas usually they'd be well ahead at this time and um yeah you, you know be, be almost ready to go already um, I just don't think there's, there's that much been happening there because of obvious everything that's been going on. Um, 
And it looks like the event is just going to be pushed back to 2021 and then the Ryder Cup will then go be every two years from there. So we'll be back to odd-numbered years, which we always were up to 2001, when obviously with 9-11, the Ryder Cup was was postponed that year and moved to 2002. We've gone from even years from there. Um, It is disappointing, but as Sam rightly says, it's safety first, I think, is the... The priority of course in these in these events and i think it is a shame um because i think there's an awful lot of sports fans and golf fans that would love to see the Ryder cup at the end of what has been such a tough year but it does perhaps make life a bit easier when we look at the schedule as it stands at the moment the us open is the week before the Ryder cup and we did always say it's going to be quite an intense period of golf with the usa US Open then being followed by the Ryder Cup, but that looks like that's probably not going to happen now. I think it's key as well for the organisers to get the Ryder Cup away from the Olympics. That is obviously not going to happen next year, but going forward, it will remain in odd number of years and the Olympics won't. So uh, I think a lot of big commercial deals are off the table in Olympic year. So I can understand it from that point as well. Uh, it's going to be difficult for the European Tour as well with their next home Ryder Cup pushed back to 2023. So three more years to wait for that big payday. But obviously they can afford it. Otherwise they would have you know pushed as hard as they possibly could to get the Ryder Cup going. Another thing as well I would say is it's if it is uh, about the players as well, it just shows you the power that the players have. Kepka, McElroy, Rahm, um, more as well, and Steve Stricker were, were very against it going ahead without fans. Yeah, it's, it's been a fascinating story to follow over the last couple of months, hasn't it? Yeah, it has been, and uh, I think it's good now that we're hopefully getting to a decision because it gets to the point where you've got to work out what's going on. I think the players needed to know what was going on. They wanted to know how they were going to try, have to qualify or not qualify. I think it was getting closer and closer to the date. We did expect something to be announced at the end of June. That's what we've been saying for a while, actually, hasn't it? And yeah. um, it looks like actually next week, which is the last week of June, is going to be when we find out. So next week, I'm sure if the announcements come out by, by the time that we've uh, recorded the podcast, we will let people know what's going on. But to make sure that you don't miss out on any breaking news, again, do check out the Golf Monthly website. And if you're an Apple user, do make sure that you follow us on Apple News because on Apple News, we can send you a, a very handy push notification when there's any really big breaking news stories in the world of golf so do check that out guys thanks ever so much for coming uh, on today elliot hope you don't chop it too much on friday and <laughs> thanks, thanks, Tom. yeah you don't have half a half a bottle of beer or whatever <laughs> no, sam, it was uh, it was three quarters of a beer yeah well there you go sam are you playing any golf this weekend uh, yeah, I'm going to try and play with my mate. It's, he's got his birthday coming up. And, uh, yeah, playing at Hurtmore Golf Club, hopefully, which is a good little track. Good little, got it for, like, £16 or something. So it's an absolute bargain oh. as well. So, well, yeah. sounds good to me. Sounds good to me. Well, I hope that goes well. We'll hopefully find out how that all happens next week. So thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe to the podcast on your usual provider. Check us out on social media and the Golf Coffee website. And until next week, we'll speak to you then.